Turn with me in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is a tremendous chapter of God's Word and one in which we'll probably spend a number of weeks within because of the many different uh, essential elements that come forth from this chapter of God's Word Uh, This morning we'll begin our consideration of the Jerusalem Council. This is the first church council, and we're going to see this morning how uh, the Lord Jesus Christ used this church council to guard his gospel. Uh, We are beneficiaries of this first church council that we can come and hear the word of God proclaimed some 2,000 years later that we can still hear the gospel as it has been guarded by Christ down through the ages. We'll begin our reading at verse 1 and read through verse 22. Let's give our careful attention to the word of God. But some, men were com- but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the other brothers were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate... Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, 
but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from blood. I'm sorry, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. I want you to imagine for a moment that we have a guest preacher here this morning. And he comes to us from a reputable seminary. He has many degrees and letters behind his name. And so it seems as if, as if he comes with many credentials that say that he is an expert in the scriptures. He opens God's word and he begins to preach. But as you listen to his message, you become increasingly uneasy. While he uses so many of the same words and ideas that we are well accustomed to, there is still something that makes you uncomfortable. You notice that there has been an addition to what he is saying and a subtraction. Suddenly there is this addition. While he says that we are indeed saved by grace through faith in Christ, he says, hey, brothers and sisters, we have neglected something very important. In order for us to be saved, we need to add to our faith something. We need to add to our belief in Christ a certain sort of work. He says we are indeed saved by grace through faith, but that faith must be combined by certain things or with certain things if it is going to result in salvation. So there is this addition, but there's also a subtraction. You have heard it said for years that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But suddenly that word alone is absent from that well-known and well-loved formulation. Suddenly there is this subtraction. The message of the gospel, according to this man, is that we must add works to our faith and subtract alone from our understanding of salvation. So what would you do if we had a guest preacher who was preaching such a message? That good news that you have loved for years and years is now suddenly threatened because of this addition and this subtraction. You have been confident in your salvation for years and years because you have believed that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But suddenly a message is being proclaimed in which he says you are not yet saved until you add this or that. So what would you do if you heard that message? What would you do with your own heart and mind as that message no doubt would be unsettling at least to some sort of degree? And what would you do for your brothers and sisters in the church? What would you do for the greater good of the church? Is there any recourse that you might have to remedy this situation? Well, that is the idea of what's going on here in Acts chapter 15. Here we have these Gentile believers in Antioch who have suddenly been unsettled because these brothers have come down from Judea with 
another message. These believers in Antioch, those Gentile believers in Antioch, were blessed to learn from Paul and Barnabas for a couple of years. They have been well instructed in the faith, but all of a sudden, these other believers come from Jerusalem as if they are dependable teachers from a reputable source, and they begin to preach this message that both adds to and subtracts from that gospel that they have loved for so many years. So what could they do now that this gospel message has come under attack? What are the means by which the Lord Jesus guards his gospel in the church? Well, this is an important matter for all of us who love the Lord Jesus. For all of us who believe that we are indeed saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, how is it that that glorious message of God's pure grace can be guarded in the church today? Well, that'll be our consideration this morning. So let's begin by considering the gospel threatened. The gospel threatened. Two weeks ago, our text ended with Paul and Barnabas returning to the church in Antioch where the Holy Spirit had first set them apart and sent them out. And with this return, Paul and Barnabas have come back to the saints in Antioch to declare to them all that God had done with them and how he had opened this door of faith now to the Gentiles. Well, Acts 15 opens with this controversy that has now suddenly arose within the church. Because verse 1 says that these men have come down from Judea teaching these brothers that unless They are circumcised according to the custom of Moses. They cannot be saved. They believe they have been saved for a couple of years now. And suddenly they are hearing, no, you can't be saved unless you are also circumcised. Verse 5 adds that some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So the success of that first missionary journey has given rise to this first great controversy within the early church. Quite quickly, this covenant community of God has become different. For years and years, for thousands of years, The covenant community of God was mostly a Jewish community. But all of a sudden, because the gospel has exploded, beginning with the day of Pentecost, many new believers have been added to this covenant community from every other nation. And that is what gives rise now to this controversy. The Jewish believers were demanding that Gentile believers hold to these matters that belong to the old covenant. So imagine these Gentile believers in Antioch trying to make sense of this message. Gentile believers came to faith as Jewish believers had fled Jerusalem because of persecution. You'll remember that all the way back in Acts chapter 11. They came to Antioch speaking of Christ and through the goodness and the grace of God, the gospel intervened and many Gentile believers were born from above. Barnabas was then sent to Antioch, and there he saw the grace of God, and he encouraged these saints in their faith. He then went and he got Paul. He recruited Paul, and Paul came down to Antioch, and he taught these believers for a year. 
The main idea of their message was that these new believers should continue steadfast in their faith. It is now several years later, and these new brothers come down from Judea bearing this message that the church in Antioch did not hear from Barnabas or from Paul. In their time together, neither Paul nor Barnabas ever mentioned anything to these believers in Antioch regarding this so-called necessity of circumcision. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So if anyone was going to bring up the issue of circumcision, it would have been him. But Paul's message never insisted that these believers be circumcised. Similarly, when Barnabas came and saw the grace of God among these Gentile believers, his encouragement to them was absent of any sort of addition to their faith. Similarly, at the end of Acts chapter 11, it tells us that these prophets came down from Jerusalem. In all of this early instruction for the saints in Antioch, there is no mention of a necessity of circumcision. We might also think about what happened at the beginning of Acts chapter 13. There, the, the church in Antioch is gathered together with Paul and Barnabas, and they are all worshiping God. And the Holy Spirit directly spoke to the church there. What was the message? Well, you'll remember that the message was the message to set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work that the Holy Spirit had for them. Which means, when the Holy Spirit directly spoke to the church in Antioch, there was no mention of any sort of dereliction of duty. You see, if it were necessary for circumcision to be added to their faith, certainly the Holy Spirit would have addressed that dereliction of duty. But the absence of any sort of mention of this so-called necessity of circumcision, well, it speaks volumes. So for years now, these Gentile believers in Antioch, they have grown in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. They have learned from Barnabas, they have learned from Paul, they have learned from these prophets. And for years, their understanding of the faith has deepened and their love for the gospel of Jesus has only grown. And suddenly there are these brothers from Judea who say to them, listen, you're not really saved. You're not really saved because you have yet to do something. So imagine just what that would be like. These were relatively new believers, relatively new to the faith, and so far they have been really encouraged in it. They've been blessed to sit at the feet of teachers like the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and these other prophets. But suddenly they're hearing something that is so unsettling. Our text, if we were to read on there in Acts chapter 15, says that they were unsettling their minds with these words. It's a message that was troubling to the souls of these believers. What would it be like if you were sitting here this morning and saying, yes, I know you think you've been believers and that you've been saved all these years, but you're not because you need to do this or you need to do that. Well, this is how the gospel was threatened in the early church. We know the content of what Paul and Barnabas preached. When Paul preached in the synagogue in Antioch of Pis Pisidia, he clearly proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. 
He proclaimed that Jesus was the one in whom there was no sin found. And yet he was still condemned to death and crucified on the cross, and God raised him from the dead. And then Paul clearly proclaimed the gospel, saying, Through this man, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Or in other words, the Apostle Paul clearly preached that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Sinners are saved apart from works because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now notice the source of this controversy in the early church. Look at verse 5. It tells us that this threat originated with some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. And so at a very basic level, we need to appreciate that this threat arose from those who professed faith. It means that these believers were promoting a message that actually undercut their own profession of faith in Christ. In one way or another, they were inconsistent. They were either genuine believers, having been united to Christ by faith, who were now imposing an unbiblical yoke upon others, or they were false professors who were revealing what they actually believed or what they truly believed. Either way, we need to appreciate the subtle ways of Satan to undermine and to undercut the gospel of God's free grace. Maybe these believers were only confused. Perhaps they were well-intentioned and at the same time way off. Perhaps they thought they were doing good for the church, that they were somehow safeguarding the church. Maybe they were only afraid of losing that close-knit community in which they had grown up. Whatever the reason was, there is this subtle shift from within the church that now threatens the gospel of God's free grace. Somehow a subtle shift occurred so that they began to believe that salvation was by grace and works, or through faith plus works. Even though these believers said, yes, you need to believe in Christ to be saved, you must have faith in Jesus, there was an addition and there was a subtraction in their formulation. They said, you must also be circumcised if you are going to be saved. And so they subtracted that beautiful and essential word alone from their formulation of the gospel. And so the gospel was threatened because of that addition and subtraction. If we are not careful, we too can fail to appreciate the absolute necessity of that single word when it comes to the gospel. You see, these believers came down from Judea, and those who stood up from among the party of the Pharisees, they had heard the gospel clearly proclaimed. These were those who had been instructed by the likes of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. Each of them had heard that we are indeed saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet, somehow, in the course of things, that single word alone had failed to take root within their hearts and minds. And because of that failure, they ended up disturbing the faith of others in Antioch. They muddied the pure waters of the gospel, and so the church in Antioch 
found itself suddenly struggling with this controversy which threatened the gospel. So what happened? What did the Lord Jesus do in order to guard his gospel? Well, let's consider that second. Let's consider the gospel guarded. Initially, Paul and Barnabas engaged that debate in Antioch. Verse 2 tells us, that they, tells us that they had no small dissension and debate with those who were teaching these things. But that dissension and debate did not settle the matter. That local church in Antioch was unable to come to a consensus about this matter. And so they appointed Paul and Barnabas with some others to go up to Jerusalem about this matter. They were there to confer with the apostles and the elders about these things. And that phrase, the apostles and the elders, is repeated like five times within our text. This is a meeting of all of the apostles and the elders. So what happened in Jerusalem? Well, here we see how the gospel was guarded by the means that Christ has appointed. Remember, Luke begins this account, the book of Acts, by saying that this is an account of all that Jesus continued to do and teach. Which means as we read the book of Acts, we need to be consciously aware that this is what Christ is doing. He is superintending over all of these events. Nothing is accidental or incidental. Instead, the king and head of the church is carefully arranging and coordinating all of these things according to his wisdom and for the good and the good of his people and the glory of his name. So here we have a controversy that could not be calmed at the local level. And because of that, it is then referred to a higher level or a wider level. The church in Antioch was unable to dispel all of this dissension that arose around this gospel threat. And so they relied upon the greater church, the wider church. They referred the matter to the wider church and the first church council met in Jerusalem. So what happened there? Well, the text tells us that the apostles and the elders welcomed those who had traveled to this meeting. There was a recognition of belonging to the very same body of Christ, even though they were from different local congregations of that wider body. They gathered together to debate this matter, and the text says there was much debate. That means there was a lot of back and forth going on. This is an essential matter and there are two sides to this matter, and those two sides were going back and forth. Much time was devoted to the discussion of this matter before them, and we have some of the record of what happened. Our text really sets it before us in three parts. First of all, Peter stands up and he reminds these brothers of what happened when he was called to go to Cornelius' house to preach the gospel. Cornelius was a Gentile. His household was full of Gentiles. And Peter was called to preach the gospel to them. And so he went and they heard the word of the gospel and believed. Well, what happened next? Well, Peter says that God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, that is those Gentile believers at his house, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. In other words, as Peter put it, God made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by 
faith. There is no mention of circumcision being added to their faith. And since these are so, these things are so, Peter asks the question, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of these disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Paul makes it crystal clear in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham received the sign of circumcision after he believed and was saved. Circumcision was given as a sign and seal of his faith, not as something added to complete his faith or to ensure his salvation. It was not a work being added so that he could be saved. Instead, as Peter makes clear here, those believers in Cornelius' house were saved through faith. And so Peter summarizes it saying, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. You can hear in Peter's words, they were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And when he proclaimed those words to this assembly in Jerusalem, the text says they all fell silent. They heard the pure grace of the gospel proclaimed, and it silenced the debate. Next, Peter and Barnabas stand up, and the text tells us very briefly that they related how signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles confirmed their faith as well. As Paul and Barnabas went throughout Galatia preaching the gospel, the work of God among the Gentiles was often confirmed through signs and wonders. That crippled man who came to saving faith as Paul preached also had his faith confirmed when God granted the use of his legs for the first time. On Cyprus, when Elymas the magician opposed the good news of the gospel, he was blinded so that his friend Sergius Paulus might come to saving faith. The text there says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And so Paul and Barnabas, following Peter's example, get up before the assembly and they say, We saw the same thing. As the gospel went forth and Gentiles believed, God provided signs and wonders that confirmed the faith of those who had believed. And in all of this, they're saying there was no addition of circumcision. There was no subtraction of that word alone. And then finally, James stands up. James stands up and he seals the deal. To establish and to confirm these things, he turns to that living and active word of God. Not only did everybody see what Peter saw at Cornelius' house, not only could everybody hear about what Paul and Barnabas witnessed through their missionary journey, but on top of it all, James says, this is confirmed by the word of God. These things were all prophesied beforehand, and so he quotes from Amos 9. After this, I will return, 
And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So what is James here saying by quoting Amos? Well, he is saying that what everyone witnessed through Peter's ministry and through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, what everyone witnessed is simply the fulfillment of God's plan. Things are unfolding in exactly the right way. Things are unfolding according to God's plan. God is in these ways rebuilding the tent that has fallen. This is the tent of David being expanded according to God's word. In this way, Christ is rebuilding the ruins. He is restoring it so that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, which includes all of these brand new believing Gentiles. God always included the gospel to go forth to include all the nations. And so these recent events needed to be understood as a fulfillment of God's word. So what does this mean? Well, it means that the gospel was guarded at the first church council. It means that the good news of Jesus Christ is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the Lord Jesus himself, through the first church council, guards his gospel by guarding against this addition and subtraction. Let's just hear the grace of the gospel again. First of all, we see here that salvation is indeed by grace alone. Look at verse 11. Peter said, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word grace is a wonderful word. It is defined as the free favor of God bestowed on undeserving sinners. John begins his gospel by telling us that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And it is from his fullness that we have all received grace upon grace. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Christ. So how did the gospel come to these Gentile believers in Antioch? Well, it came to them by the grace of God. Was there any merit measured within them to make sure that they were worthy hearers of the grace of the gospel? No, none. Because salvation is by grace. It is by grace alone. The same salvation that came to both Jews and Gentiles is the gospel of God's free grace. That's why Peter says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So the first church council said that salvation is by grace alone. But second, it also said that our salvation is through faith alone. Peter reported that these Gentiles who believed at Cornelius' house received the Holy Spirit. In this way, he says, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them and made no distinction among them because he cleansed those Gentile hearts by faith. What accompanied that faith? Nothing. Because it is through faith alone. Here these men have come down from Judea and they are saying now to these Gentile believers, wait a minute, it's good to have faith, but you also need the work 
of circumcision. But Peter is going to argue, or he does argue, that no. When I preach the gospel to those Gentiles in Cornelius' house, their hearts were immediately cleansed when they believed through faith. So Peter vehemently opposed this new position because it attacked the gospel at its core. They were saying, these believers who had come down from Judea were saying that in order to be saved, you must add to your faith this work of circumcision. But Peter says, if you make that mistake, you miss the gospel. And so that's why Peter clearly demonstrated that the gospel came to the Gentiles. And when they simply believed, their hearts were cleansed by faith. Were they circumcised, those Gentile believers? No. But God bore witness to them anyways of their salvation by giving them the Holy Spirit. Did Peter then instruct them to keep the ceremonial law of God? Did he tell them, you too need to be circumcised? No. Because Peter saw clearly that their hearts were cleansed by faith. And so salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And this first church council guards that our salvation is through faith alone. And then third, salvation is in Christ alone. To have faith, you must have faith in something. Our culture today speaks of faith in a generic sense, as if you can just have faith, as, it's, as if it's some sort of abstract thing. But saving faith is faith in Jesus Christ. To have true saving faith means that you place your trust entirely upon Jesus Christ to be your Savior. It is to rest in his life, death, and resurrection for your salvation. It is to believe that according to God's word, Christ's righteousness is sufficient for you. It is your righteousness. As you trust in Christ, that righteousness is imputed to you so that you can be reconciled to God. It is also to believe that according to God's word, Christ's death, is sufficient to remove your sins far from you, as far as the east is from the west. It is to believe that according to God's word, you have not only died with Christ, but you have been raised with him to new life. And just as God publicly displayed his complete satisfaction in the work of Christ, that as you trust in Christ, as you rely upon him you are then perfectly reconciled to God. That by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you can be sure about your standing before God in Christ. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this way, the Jerusalem council guarded the gospel. After considering the words of Peter, of Paul and Barnabas, and of James, the council was convinced by the word of God that salvation is indeed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this glorious message is what they guarded 
And then they decided, after coming to consensus, as the apostles and the elders, they then sent word of the glorious gospel back to all of the churches. This is how the gospel was guarded. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This good news is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That there is nothing that you do to merit God's mercy. You maybe have been raised in the church. You maybe have served in the church. You maybe have lived a very upright life in the eyes of this world. But at the end of the day, none is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is nothing in you to commend you to God or to merit any sort of standing before him. But salvation is in Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone. You can stand before God saved. In this way, the gospel can be summarized in a single word. Jesus. He is the Savior. Even your faith is not a work. It is that lone instrument through which you believe upon Christ. Faith is like that open hand that simply receives a gift. Faith is like the open mouth that receives nourishment that is provided by another. And as we heard in our call to worship this morning, our faith is not a work that we do, but rather it is a gift given to us by God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so we are indeed saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's why Paul writes in Romans 10, For Christ is the end of the law for everyone to all who believe. Jesus paid our debt. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. And so he is the Savior of all who believe. This glorious reality is illustrated best perhaps nowhere else than the thief on the cross. At one point during Christ's crucifixion, that thief was cursing. He was joining with the other criminal on the other side, cursing Christ. But then as we are told in the Gospels, he ends up speaking with Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So how was he saved? Was it because he had faith plus works? Was it because he was instructed to fulfill or to keep the Mosaic economy, the the ceremonial law? Was it because he was circumcised? No. It was because he was saved by Christ. He was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, this is the only way that any are saved. So do you know Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in him? Have you been given that gift of faith so that you rely upon Christ alone for your salvation? Do you believe the promise of the gospel? 
Do you believe God, when he says to you in his word, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? Because that is the gospel. And that is how God guarded the gospel. The first church council safeguarded the gospel some 2,000 years ago so that we might be gathered here today to hear the same gospel. So that we might hear glorify Jesus Christ because we are indeed saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, some came from Judea and they preached a message that disturbed the minds of these early believers in Antioch. And what we see here in the beginning of Acts 15 is the way that the Lord Jesus Christ himself guarded his gospel so that the faith of his people would not be disturbed, so that their faith and their confidence in Christ might be restored. So that they might consider the words of Christ when he said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. This is why Paul would later write to the Galatians saying, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. You see, there is only one gospel, and it is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So if anyone else ever came and preached to you another gospel, let him be accursed. Instead, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Christ. Rest in Jesus because his salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's give praise to him. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for this word which sets before us how you guarded the gospel, the good news. And Lord God, we thank you that you have spoken so clearly in your word to safeguard the gospel. Lord God, we pray that you would bless our hearts today as we meditate upon the glorious realities that we are indeed saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Lord God, God, would you guard us from any sort of addition that seeks to keep us from coming to you. Any sort of addition that says, well, maybe if, I, maybe if I can read my Bible for five days, then I can return to Christ. Maybe if I keep from this or that sin, then I can come to Christ. May we be guarded against anything that keeps us from coming directly to you. Let us believe your word. And so be guarded by the gospel. May we believe that we come to you in our sin, not needing to do anything in and of ourselves to come to you, but rather that we come according to the promise of the gospel. That it is because of your undeserved favor for sinners 
that we can simply come to you and be saved? Will you give us that gift of faith? Will you increase our faith that we might believe these things and so rejoice in the gospel? And may we see, Lord Jesus, as our salvation is in you, that you have given to us the greatest gift of all, and that is reconciliation with you, our God. And so may we rejoice in these things and so bring glory to you with our lives in this world. And so we seek these things now by seeking them in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, let's.